What would things look like if Satan were to take control of a city? It's an interesting question. It's a question decades ago that Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse asked. And he offered his own scenario, uh, answer to the question that he put forward. His speculation was this. That if Satan took over a city, all of the bars would be closed. Pornography banished. And pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes sir and no ma'am. And all the churches would be filled every Sunday. But Christ would not be preached. Now you may not agree with everything Barnhouse concludes there. I, I, I certainly necessarily don't. But you, you get it what he's, what he's getting at there. Satan isn't bothered by a city becoming morally improved. He isn't kept up at night by who wins a political election. He isn't even primarily concerned if church attendance is increasing. What makes Satan tremble is whenever Christ is proclaimed. You see, there is a, a kind of Christless Christianity that is a real problem. Always has been, particularly in America today. It's a type of Christianity that certainly mentions Jesus, but functionally, it's more concerned about prosperity or size of the organization or their own brand or comfort or whatever it might be. Jesus has become a mascot for whatever it is they truly care about. And how can we overcome a kind of Christless Christianity? We overcome it through genuine Christians taking on their God-commissioned roles to proclaim the real Jesus in the ministry of their lives. I'm bring that down to us. It's, it's through you taking the God-commissioned role that He has given you to proclaim Jesus in your ministry. Now you may hear that and go, well, Caleb, I don't, I don't really have a ministry. You're the one on staff here. You, you've got a ministry. I don't have a ministry. I'm here to listen to your ministry. Or maybe you're uncertain what your ministry should look like. Oh, friends, I hope that we walk out today and we see that God doesn't have ministries for certain people. He has ministries for all His people. He has a particular calling for each of us. That the Christian is not called in to follow Jesus to be a consumer, but to be a minister. The Christian is not to be a customer, but an ambassador. Every single person, everyone who has been saved by Jesus has been sent by Jesus. And if that's the case, then what is that supposed to look like? What should my ministry look like? What should the ministry of this church look like? And those are good questions, and they're the questions that Paul answers for us in our text this morning. We'll be continuing through Colossians 1 and jumping back into verse 24. We're coming out of the heels, again, of the most uh, kind of succinct and packed description of who Jesus is in all of the Bible. The supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. Paul has just gotten done unpacking this in verses 15 through 23. So what's Paul's response to this? Paul's response is then how it shapes his ministry and how it should shape all of ours as well. And so this morning, you see, we were looking through uh, Colossians 1.24, going through 2.5. Um, the more that I got into it this week, we're actually saving all of chapter 2 until next week. So we're just looking at verses 24 to 29 this morning. We'll look at all of 2 next week. I think that's Paul's application of this than to the church in Colossae specifically. So it's a little bit different from the bulletin. We'll be in 24 through 29 this morning. 
And looking at that, there's three things that Paul shows us what ministry should look like, what our lives should look like. Those three things here in verses 24 through 29, as he says that our lives, our ministries, should be shaped by the cross of Jesus, should be centered on the person of Jesus, and should be empowered by the Spirit of Jesus. Should be shaped by the cross of Jesus. We see this in verse 24. Should be centered on the person of Jesus. We see this in verses 25 through 28. And finally, empowered by the Spirit of Jesus in verse 29. Look at verse 24. Paul begins, again, he's just come out talking about the grandeur, the supremacy, sufficiency of Jesus. What does he do? Verse 24. Well, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. That is the church. Now we'll stop right there uh, because this is an interesting verse. And we talked last week, the danger of pulling a verse out of its context and holding it up and trying to, we can make it mean whatever we want to. You know, a, a, a text out of context is a pretext for a proof text. And if you take this out and hold it up, you can make it mean all sorts of things. So we got to try to understand, well, what is Paul saying here? One commentator put it this way, this is one of the most debated verses in all of Scripture. Wonderful. So what's it mean? Well, to answer that, first we have to answer what it doesn't mean. Again, allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. Here's what it does not mean. It does not mean that Paul is saying that in his sufferings for this church, he is completing in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough, and Paul is now completing it. He's bringing it to completion. He's adding to what was less than in Christ. Paul is not saying that because remember what he just got done saying in verses 19 through 23. Jesus has reconciled everything through himself, through his blood shed on the cross. Everywhere else in the New Testament, we see that Jesus' work is finished. His work of reconciliation, of atonement on the cross is done. His suffering is not only unique, not meant by anyone else to be able to be picked up, because he is the one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. That's Paul writing to Timothy. His, world, his role was unique, his work was unique, and his work is complete. So Paul is not saying, hey, Jesus did a pretty good job, now I'm going to just kind of polish up the edges a little bit. It's not what he's saying. So what does it mean? Again, commentators, uh, people, and uh, scholars, theologians have, have landed in different places. Looking through it this week, I think the best way to understand this for me is I've looked at this and, and looking around different places in the Bible is the one, the way in which Paul understands his sufferings to be completing something. What's it completing? A good verse for reference is to go to Revelation. You can flip there, write it down, look later. In Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11, there's this scene that John has in this future revelation in heaven of these Christian martyrs in heaven. In verse 9, chapter 6, it says this, that when he opened the fifth seal, he saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. So people who had been killed because of their Christian faith and their Christian witness. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. I think this is what Paul's getting at here. 
that there is, in essence, a, a tally, a number of, of those who would suffer, persecute, be persecuted, and be killed for their faith. And Jesus is uh, here telling them in Revelation 6 that they must rest until that number would be completed. And so as Paul suffers and one day would be killed for his faith, as uh, a Roman uh, guard would separate his head from his body, would behead him and kill him for his witness, Paul would bring that mark one step closer to being completed as he's filling up and completing in his flesh. This which is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. That is the church. Paul is filling that up, moving the needle closer to the day when Jesus will return in that sense. I think that's, I think that's what Paul's getting at here. You also get in this verse, you see not just the sense in which he's completing something, but you notice what he is completing. And Christ's afflictions for who? Christ's afflictions were for his body. Well, who is his body? He defines it here as his church. I don't want us to breeze past the relationship that Jesus has with his church. The personal relationship that Jesus has with his church. The intimate relationship with Jesus has with his church. It's his body. To the extent that when his body suffers, Jesus considers that he himself is suffering. And when his people are persecuted, Jesus considers he himself is persecuted. This is why Paul, whenever he was... Uh, before he was a Christian, uh, Paul would, uh, was one of the early um, uh, persecutors of the Christian faith. He was going around, he was a religious uh, zealot in the Jewish sect and was going around and, and pulling, out, um, pulling out people, taking them to prison, killing them, and he was trying to silence this movement. This was Paul. Paul's on his way to Damascus and he's going to continue ravaging the church. And all of a sudden Jesus shows up and he has an encounter with Jesus. Paul gets knocked off his horse. He's blinded. Jesus has this conversation with him. And you know the first question Jesus asked him in Acts 9 verse 4? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But Jesus had already been crucified, raised, and ascended. He's in heaven. He's at the right seat of the Father. Saul's not persecuting him. Saul and Paul are the same person. Saul's not persecuting him. Saul's persecuting the church. Oh, but friends, Jesus has such an intimate connection with his church that those, whenever his people suffer, he suffers. Whenever his people are persecuted, he is persecuted. That's why he goes to Paul and, say, and Saul and says, why are you persecuting me? That the church's afflictions are Christ's afflictions. That he feels what his people feel. He is a sympathetic high priest. You don't find gods like this in other religions. This is Jesus. And Paul is saying that this is his connection to his body, that is the church. And Paul is then suffering for this church, completing then that number of those who are suffering, being persecuted, as Jesus is connected to his body and to his church. But there's another word I want to look at here that may seem odd, right there at the very beginning of verse 24, that Paul is doing what? Now I rejoice in my suffering. There, there, is, there, are, there are sermon series and books and, and months that we could take unpacking how poor of a theology of suffering we have, particularly in America, I think. We love comfort, and anything that pushes against that comfort must be bad. But here Paul is saying that he rejoices in his suffering. Why? 
Because he sees that his suffering is being actually used by God to continue to push this gospel forward. That he will not be abandoned by God, but that he is held by God and that God is actually using every bit of it, all of it, for his good and for his glory. That Jesus' suffering was for our propitiation, for the appeasement of God's wrath, as a sacrifice for our sin. But our suffering is for propagation, as it pushes the gospel forward. You look throughout history, and do you know when the gospel shoots around the world? Friends, it's through suffering. Whenever there are brothers and sisters walking through situations in life that are unimaginable, whose circumstances have fallen in around them, and yet in the heart of it all, they still go, I don't know, God, what you're doing. How long until you come back? But until that point, Jesus, you are still enough. When that's the testimony of Christians, friends, the world leans in and goes, what do you have that no one else does? How can Jesus be good enough that you can still say that in the midst of what you're going through? Friends, prosperity doesn't win anybody to Jesus. This is why I hate the prosperity gospel. I hate it. The gospel that well, you'll see if you flip on TV, it's the gospel that says if you believe enough, God will give you anything you want. Here's all the money. Here's all the job. Here's the new house. It'll just all, everything. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. All of it. But guys, again, the goal of that, what draws people to that movement is not Jesus. It's prosperity. It's still us underneath it all. I'll go follow Jesus because he'll give me what I really want. Jesus is not some magic lamp. He's the king of the universe. And listen, if we follow him, do you know what our lives will look like? They will look like the path that he walked. And do you know where he walked? He walked to a cross. Friends, our lives must be shaped by the cross of Jesus. We should not be surprised when they look like the cross of Jesus. We will suffer. That's expected. On this side of eternity, still in this broken world, suffering will happen. All right, this is, I want to look just real quick at three things when we think about suffering. Right, first, and you will suffer. Welcome to the grove. I think that's actually, though, a very helpful thing to be able to say. Because we don't like, we want to push it aside. We don't want to address it. But what ends up happening is that when suffering eventually does come, we aren't prepared for it. Because we try to just push it away and not think about it. But friends, it will happen. Jesus tells us this, Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's a cross to bear. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone, it's coming. Different shapes, different forms, depending on where you are. But persecution, suffering will come. You will suffer. But friends, here's the second thing to know about suffering. You will never suffer alone. Partly and true because of the body of Christ that we are to bear one another's burdens and walk alongside. But I don't even mean that. What I mean is this, is that you will always, no matter where you are, no matter what circumstance you are in, there is always someone who is there with you, who has walked that path before you. This is the promise that Jesus has given us. The famous Psalm, Psalm 23. What does David write? That even when I go through the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. 
The promise is not that we won't go through the valley. The promise is we won't go through the valley alone. And as we go through the valley, we go through with one who's already walked it and who's going to see us out the other side. And that's the third thing that we need to see about suffering is that you will not suffer forever. Friends, you will suffer, but you will never suffer alone and you will not suffer forever. Listen, I've read the whole thing. I know how it ends. It's a great ending. Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. Revelation 21.4 Friends, every ounce of your pain and your suffering in this life has an expiration date on it. Samuel Rutherford, an old minister, put it this way, that our crosses, our sufferings, are like puffs of wind to blow our ship home. They convey us to heaven's gate, but they cannot follow it into heaven. Amen. Friends, our, our suffering will not last forever. And Jesus is using it here today to continue to push this gospel forward. This is what Jane read just a second ago. This is our hope, that while we are afflicted in every way, we are not crushed we are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Because we know, verse 14, 2 Corinthians 4, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything, all of the suffering in our life is for your benefit so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. And his conclusion, the very next verse, therefore we do not give up. We continue the next step because God is using it all. And we can then be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. We can walk through the suffering and the pain in this life, not slapping a smile on our face going, oh, it's all going to be okay. That's not, the, that's not the Christian story. We feel the brokenness of this world. We weep with those who weep. We feel the grief overwhelming even in our own lives, but we grieve not like those who don't have hope. We grieve with hope. We suffer as we rejoice. The two go together. This is the hope of the Christian. This is the, the Christian experience through this life. You look at Jesus in the story of Lazarus. Whenever he showed up and his friend had died, and Mary and Martha, two of his closest friends, one was weeping, one was ignoring him. Just so frustrated, knowing that if he had come, her brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus looks around, and he sees the pain that death has caused. And you know what Jesus does in that moment? It's the shortest verse in the Bible. He weeps. He cries. Now listen, Jesus knew what was about to happen, like minutes in the future. But yet he still felt the pain in this world. Just because you know how the thing ends doesn't mean it doesn't hurt today. It means we walk through it with hope. Friends, if that's what Jesus did, it's the same for us. And so we will suffer, but we never suffer alone, and we will not suffer forever. That's why Paul can say that these are momentary afflictions in 2 Corinthians 4.17. That we know there will be a final tear, but there will never be a final laugh, a final dance, a final smile, a final feast, a final celebration. Those things are eternal. 
And so what do we walk away with here? This cross-shaped ministry? Oh, friends, suffering is normal. Jesus is with us, and heaven is the promise. We hold on to those as we move forward. And we realize that our life not only needs to be saved by the cross, but it needs to be shaped by the cross. For life to come, things have to die. This is the kingdom of God. And we walk forward suffering and rejoicing. Not only should this life and ministry be shaped by the cross of Jesus, but we also see, second, it's centered on the person of Jesus. Verses 25 through 28. Man, I took way, I t- I, way too much time on that first point. Okay, we're going to spend more time here. We'll spend less time on the third point because I talked about it a couple weeks ago. There it is. That's how we're going. All right, second point. Centered on the person of Jesus. Verse 25 to 28. And Paul says this. He says that I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ and you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The second aspect of a ministry that's following Jesus, a life that's following him, is that it's centered on the person of Jesus. All right, you hear Paul's thought here. Uh, Paul is now flowing in out of what Jesus is and who he's done, and he, he notes that his life is shaped by the cross. It's, it's shaped by suffering. He rejoices in that suffering as he follows in Christ's example. But now in verse 25, he says that he has become its servant or its minister, referring to the church. He's a a minister, a servant of the church. You look back up to the same language in verse 23. As he says that he is a a servant there. The gospel has been proclaimed in all of creation. I have become a servant of it. He's a servant or a minister of the gospel. A servant or a minister of the church. This is Paul's ministry. It's how he understands it to be. He's a a servant. Where did that come from, Paul? Did you just declare yourself to be that? He says, no, I am a servant according to God's commission or God's stewardship. God's commission that was given to me for you. So Paul's saying, I didn't go and make myself this. God commissioned me. God gave me this stewardship saying, Paul, I'm going to entrust you with this part of my kingdom to go and do this. God commissioned Paul. And again, look who God chose. The Apostle Paul, Saul, the the great persecutor of the church. I described it earlier. Acts 8.3 puts it this way. Saul was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house and drag off men and women and bring them to prison. That's what Saul was doing. Acts 8. Then Acts 9, Saul has this encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. And Jesus says, hey, I'm going to use you to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish world. That's going to be your ministry, Paul, to go. And that's where we get most of these books in the New Testament are written by Paul. And I love the scene in Acts 9 whenever Paul shows up for the first time around the disciples. Like, can, you imagine, can you imagine just being a disciple in that room? You're sitting around. You're in Jerusalem. Hanging out, you and Peter are talking about, I don't know, whatever dumb thing Peter did the day before. And all of a sudden you hear the door open and you look and here comes Saul. You, you begin to look around like, hey, we, is, this, is this it? Is this the end? 
Jesus told us, like, this kind of stuff was going to happen. Is this it? Oh, this, is, this is over, right? And that's, that's Saul. I know what he's been doing. And he arrived, uh, Acts 9.26 says this way, that when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the t- disciples, but they were all afraid of him. So Saul's trying to catch up with him, like, guys, I, I, I love Jesus now. Not only do I love him, I'm taking the gospel to the unknown world. I can't wait to tell you. And they're just ghosting him. They're like, we don't want to talk. Are you kidding me? We don't want to see you. And then finally one of the disciples comes and is like, no, listen, here's the whole thing. There's a whole like Damascus Road thing, a donkey, scales. It's, it's, it's Paul. It's, it's Paul. He's, he's going to be great. Trust me. Trust me. Sure enough, things work out. But look at who God chose. Saul, Paul, the persecutor of the church, a religious zealot, a religious terrorist, those killing Christians. God said, that's the one I'm going to use. And Saul didn't come to Jesus. Jesus came to Saul. And do not miss the power of the saving grace of Jesus. That if he can reach in and save someone like Saul and use him for such extraordinary ways, friends, that should tell us there is no one in our lives who is beyond the saving reach of the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of his blood. And so, brothers and sisters, if, if you've got children, maybe they've grown, that have left the faith, wayward children, I, I, I can't imagine the prayers that you've said, the tears that you've cried, and I'm sure the whisper from the enemy telling you how hopeless it is that they may return. But friends, do not look past the saving power of the grace of Jesus Christ. There is no one beyond the saving reach of Jesus' hand. And it should also show us that our effort should not be to argue. Our effort should be to consistently bring them to encounter Jesus. Because he's the one that changes hearts. Oh, friends, there is never no one without hope. And that's who God chose and who God commissions here in verse 25. Paul being commissioned to make the word of God fully known. To go and teach then the word of God. He says it a different way in verse 26. That this mystery that was hidden for ages and generations but now is revealed to the saints. So making the Word of God fully known, this mystery revealed, this is Paul's commission. Verse 27 then tells, uh, that's the what he is to do. Well, where is he to do it? Verse 27 then tells us that God wanted to make known among the Gentiles. That's Paul's ministry. That was Paul's commission, his stewardship, to take this gospel and preach it then to the non-Jewish world, which is... I think pretty much all of us. That's a, we are the Gentiles. We are here because of Paul's commission from Jesus there in Acts 9. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. This mystery that was now revealed. And now, if we aren't careful, we can read that and go, well, all this is just about Paul's ministry. This isn't me. My, God has not commissioned me to take the gospel uh, to the ends of the earth among the entire Gentiles. That was a specific commission that Jesus gave to Paul on the road to Damascus. That's true. And so we do not take this and copy it and just paste it directly to our lives. But what is not true is that God does not have a ministry then for each of us. That was Paul's ministry, his commission, his stewardship to go among the Gentiles. But I want you to look at that phrase there, that prepositional phrase there in 27, among the Gentiles. I want you to just take out in your mind, don't actually take it out because that's like blasphemy, but keep it in your Bible. But imagine it, that it's not there and there's a blank there. Among the blank. 
And where does God have you today? Where is the ministry that He has called you to make the Word of God fully known among the blank? It may be among my house. It may be among the neighborhood. Among the softball team. Among my CrossFit box. Among the place where I get my hair cut. Among my co-workers. Among the play date I go to every month in the town. Among wherever it might be. That there is a place that God has each of us. And there is a ministry that He has called us to. A place that He has called us to. I've heard somebody say before that we may pick our friends, but God picks our neighbors. He's got us somewhere. And He's not only got us somewhere, He has then given us a ministry among that place. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that we have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. All that reconciliation in verses 19 to 23, that has been entrusted to each of us to take that mystery that has been revealed, to take that that word from God and take it then among wherever it is we might be, that as we go, that's the ministry that God has for us. That we are ambassadors, we are ministers, we are servants of His gospel. Every one of us. This is not just for elders or deacons or staff. It's for every single follower of Jesus. And friends, if God, if God came this morning and said, Caleb, I'll, I'll answer one prayer for certain, absolutely, anything you ask for your church, what would you ask? I think it would be that we could all, myself included, could entirely understand this truth, that I am not a customer, I am an ambassador. I'm an ambassador for the king. My life is meant to reflect and resemble and proclaim him. That's why I'm here. And whatever facet that might be, and that we then can go into our community living and preaching in a way that looks like Jesus, talking about him, living like him, pointing people to him, every single one of us, and that we could own the ministry that God has given to us, and that we could see what a privilege it is, what other response do we have as we look at Jesus, the king of the universe, the creator of worlds, the sustainer of galaxies and every cell and atom, the one who is before all things, the one who is all supreme, the one who is all sufficient, who has reconciled everything back to himself. This Jesus has now saved me. Now what do I do? I want to go into the world to tell people about him. What other choice do I have? That's why Paul, again, you see the order of things. Paul begins with Jesus. He doesn't begin just with like, okay, guys, we need to work on our evangelism here. He doesn't begin with a guilt trip. He begins with an incredible picture of Jesus. And what other response do we have then but then to go among the places that God has given us to proclaim Him, to act then as that ambassador? This is what Paul's ministry was, but friends, we each have a ministry as well. And Paul's was among the Gentiles. Where is yours? Among the blank. How would you fill in that blank? Where's the mission field that you are going to? To proclaim that glorious wealth. I love that description of the gospel. So in some ways, the gospel is the prosperity gospel. We've just missed what the prosperity is. The glorious wealth isn't in what's in your bank account. Guys, it's in Jesus Christ. The glorious wealth of this mystery is what? In verse 27, it's Christ in you. The hope of glory. 
He is the reward. He's the treasure. He's the prosperity. He's the glorious wealth. He's the one that will be with you forever. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Right? John Piper, pastor in Minneapolis, has famously said, he's never seen a U-Haul attached to the back of a hearse. You can't take it with you. But friends, Jesus is the one that's saying, I am with you forever. I'm a wealth that won't end. There's a glorious wealth to be found, not just in the future, but even today, in you, in Christ, in you, the hope of glory. He's the wealth. He's the mystery. Christ in you, the great Messiah, now indwelling all of His people, both Jewish and Gentile. That's the mystery. God now in us, Christ in us, through His Spirit. For all those who believe, Jesus is now living in us. Making us then His temple, where His presence dwells. Christ in us. He is the hope of glory. So my favorite descriptions of Jesus. That Jesus is the hope of glory. When I was in um, an internship I was doing in 2015... I was at a church in D.C. at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and the pastor was there, Mark Dever. Mark has probably had more of an impact on me and my ministry than, than any other man in my life. It was a great chance to be able to go, and we were there, we'd read a bunch of books, we're writing papers, we're following around, and what, what Mark would often do is would bring us to places as he was ministering, and then afterwards we'd sit around a desk, and he'd just let us ask questions as, as interns. We were, we were 23-year-olds who knew everything. And he'd let us ask questions, and, and he'd answer and I, the, what, I think the most formative moment I had up there is after he had preached a funeral of a member there who had been there for decades. And he preached this phrase, the hope of glory, and just expounded on the hope that we have in Jesus and the glory that is to come. And afterwards, we're sitting around his desk, and I asked him, I said, Mark, when, when you're preaching funerals, do you preach like the same message or... Uh, do you have, you know, a handful of different ones? And he begins to tear up. And he said, no. He said, I just, I just inch my way through the Bible, and anywhere I get a hint of heaven, I underline it. And I just sit, and I think, and I meditate, and I just hold it out in the midst of a moment like that. And he said, I, he said I'll be honest with you. He said, any wedding in our church, I try to give it to all of our pastors, but I say, give me all the funerals. I remember hearing that as a 23-year-old, and I'm like, well, that's, what are you talking about? And then stepping into ministry, I've gotten to officiate a number of weddings, and here's what I realized. No one is there to listen to me at the weddings. <laughs> As I've preached funerals, there are never more attentive moments than then. And I began to get my head around a little bit what he meant. And not just the sense of who's listening, it's the sense of what kind of a message do we have. And the message of Jesus shines the brightest whenever the moments are the darkest. Because a risen Christ can bring real hope in the moment of complete despair. And friends, this is the hope that Jesus offers. And what we see is that hope is most cherished whenever it is most needed. Hope is the most cherished whenever it's most needed. Right? If, 
If I'm watching Mississippi State play football and it's fourth down, which happens a lot at Mississippi State, and it's fourth down, and they get this huge fourth down conversion, and we get a first down, and there's a chance to win. There is something in me that almost erupts because of the moment of almost despair. It was fourth and 23, but our quarterback scrambles around, breaks from a tackle, throws a first down, and there's this moment of elation because we get a first down, and the moment of seeming like we weren't going to be able to do anything. But if it's second and inches, and we get a QB sneak, I'm like, oh, that kind of makes sense. We had to get like two inches for a first down. But whenever things seem to be on the rocks, whenever that hope is then enlivened in us, there is something that awakens in us. And hope is most cherished when it is most needed. And friends, it is never more needed than whenever we stare at death. Our final enemy, right in the face. It's what comes for all of us. None of us can escape that. And Jesus is saying, there is real hope in that moment. There is real hope in a risen Christ, in a resurrection and this resurrection stuff, I know it sounds so abstract, like so ethereal up in the air. Until someone that you know dies. And then it becomes the most cherished truth that we hold on to. Eleven years ago when I got the phone call that my father had passed away from a heart attack suddenly. I was flying back on the plane. There were two places in the Bible I just kept reading over and two chapters I read over and over again. Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15. And 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and for his saints in him in the future. And that chapter never meant anything to my heart until that day. But now I read words like this. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? There's this sort of bold defiance that followers of Jesus have. Now in the midst of this, because of this hope of glory, Christ in us, a victorious and triumphant Christ that now dwells in us and promises us the hope of glory to come, that we can look at death in the face and it becomes this cherished truth of the resurrection that we hold on to in the seeming finality face of death. That we can look and go, listen, you, I understand what's happening right now. I know this is not the way the world was supposed to be, but this is not how it will always be. There's a story of two friends in the 1700s. Both of them were pastors. And one of them preached the funeral of his friend. John Ryland was the one preaching the funeral. John Ryland stood at the graveside of his friend's tomb. And he said this. He said, farewell, my dear old man. We leave you in the possession of death until the resurrection day. But we will bear witness against you, O King of Terrors, at the mouth of this dungeon, that you will not always have possession of this dead body. It will be demanded of you by the great conqueror, and at that moment you will resign your prisoner. O minister of Christ, you people of God, you surrounding spectators, prepare to meet this old servant of Christ at that day, that hour, when this whole place shall be nothing but life, and death will be swallowed up in victory. Friends, how can we have that kind of posture at a funeral? Because we have the hope of glory, the certainty of life, the promise of victory. Because we have Christ in us. And we are fighting and suffering until He comes for us or we go to Him. But friends, listen, we are fighting a battle that He has already won. 
and we rest in Him, the hope of glory. And so as we then are in this ministry of Christ among us, uh, we are in this ministry among wherever it might be. That's where He has us. What are we then to do? What is the, the point? What is the message that we say? Well, Paul tells us in verse 28, we proclaim Him. That's the summary of Paul's ministry. Right, it's the vision kind of statement for our year this year. It comes here. This is Paul's summary. This is all we have. We proclaim Him. He's the message. We proclaim Him. Christ the Creator. Christ the Sustainer. Christ the Reconciler. Christ the Sufferer. Christ the Risen. This is who we proclaim Him. We proclaim a person. That's the Christian message. Not a worldview, not a political ideology, not a moral improvement plan or a religious system, but the risen Christ. He's not simply a service to be attended, a way to live your life, an avenue for community, a way to feel better about yourself, or a way to improve your self-esteem, or a subject to be studied. Friends, He is a person to be known and a Savior to be proclaimed. He's the message. And we don't just walk around proclaiming Him. I know some, some of you may go, okay, I hear all of that. I got you. And I've heard last week, but like, give me something practical. Like, I need something practical. Like, it's just been all about Jesus. What I'm not saying is you just walk in and we just proclaim Jesus in His name. So if you're talking to your kids and they're disobedient, just look at them and go, Jesus. <laughs> I proclaimed Him. That's what the text says. I guess it's not what, it's not what we're saying. It's not what Paul's saying either. That we proclaim Jesus, His person and His work. But how do we proclaim Him? He tells us, look at verse 28. By warning and teaching, both. Warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So we want to make sure that as we proclaim Him, we proclaim Him with all wisdom. Being sure that we are applying the truth of His person and work to the warnings, to making sure that we're not straying away from Him, and teaching to positively show then how we are to live. So Paul's going to get into this. I think this is really the rest of Colossians. Chapter 2, he's going to warn them against false teaching as he's proclaiming Jesus and who he is. And then chapters 3 and 4, he gets incredibly practical. He talks about what your home should look like, your vocation, your parenting, your speech, your productivity. But here's the thing about the Christian life, that the practical aspects of the Christian life are never divorced from the person and work of Jesus. Ever. So we don't do like, okay, let's worship Jesus and now let me go like figure out how to live my life. We see who Jesus is. We understand Him. We proclaim Him. We want to understand and be filled with the knowledge of His will, as Paul prayed, so that then we can take it and apply it to how we spend our money, how we vacation, how it is we work, how it is we think about our retirement. All of it. But it flows from and is directly connected to the person and work of Christ. We proclaim Him, and we want to make sure we're warning and teaching everyone indiscriminately with all wisdom as we apply Jesus to every single corner of our life. That's the Christian life. And that's our message. That's it. It's summed up. We proclaim Him. That's what it is we are to do. We are to be centered on the person of Jesus. And we do all of that so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the hope. As we proclaim Him, notice this isn't simply evangelistic. This is for Christians to grow in maturity. It's how we grow more into Christ's likeness as we hear more about Him. We proclaim Him, we treasure Him, we follow Him that we may grow into maturity. It's also just worth noting that this is what Paul was laboring for. 
Right? 29. I labor for this, to present everyone as mature. That's what Paul's wanting to know. Is this church growing in maturity? You know what Paul didn't ask in Colossians or any of his other letters to the churches? Hey, what are you guys running now on Sundays? What's your attendance looking like? Budget? Y'all doing okay on budget? In the, a little in the red? Okay, listen. Here's a giving campaign I've seen. It works really good. Get those numbers up. Y'all are going to be fine. That's not Paul's concern. Paul's concern is that these churches would grow into the likeness of Jesus. That's success. Oh, that we would get a hold of that. That we could be committed to say, Jesus, we will be focused on the depth of our ministry. That we could grow in maturity and likeness in you. And that we'll trust you with the breadth. No matter how big or small things might be, Lord, that's, that's just not our focus. We just don't care. We're here to present everyone as mature in Christ, that we would look like you. You may go, well, how in the world do we do all that? Great question. Third point, and the fastest. We do it as we're empowered by the Spirit of Jesus. Paul says in verse 29, I labor for this, striving with His strength that works powerfully in me. Paul sees the task ahead of him, and he knows, I can't do this on my own. But praise God, I'm not doing it on my own. It is His strength in me. As he says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, that it's by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. But on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul says, I'm working, but it's not me working. It's the grace of God. It's Christ in me. He's the one that is moving this forward. He's the one that's moving the needle. Uh, we talked about this in our um, Grove Kids conference yesterday and about w- how it is we're trusting in the power of ministry. And think about uh, a golfer. I'm not a very good golfer. Um, I've got a handful of golf clubs from a really nice golf boutique. Local. It's, it's, I've got a local store here, but they're an international chain. It's called Goodwill. It's wonderful. <laughs> and if I take my golf club and I go out in the golf course and drop a golf ball <clears throat> about 120 yards out, I, I'll swing back and judge my form all you want and I, Take a swing and it goes. And the, the, the goal for me is that I can see where the ball lands. That's, that's the win for me in golf. But if then after I swing and the ball lands wherever it's going to land, I then turn and this guy named Tiger Woods is right behind me. And I go and give this club to Tiger. And Tiger comes and drops the ball right where mine was, maybe behind my huge divot I've just left. And he takes the same club, same ball, the same conditions, and he swings. It's going to land in a much different location than mine. Now, what's important to observe is it's the same ball, the same conditions, and the exact same club. There's one difference. Whose hands the club were in? Whose hands were the club in? And they weren't in mine, they were in his. And that's what made the difference. And friends, when it comes to our lives, when it comes to our ministry, I think so much of our frustration is we're trying to do it in our own hands, in our own strength. And Paul is saying, you can't do it. But God has given you His Spirit in you, the very hope of glory, to empower you with His strength to be able to move forward. So give it to Him. Stop trying to do it on your own. What does that mean? Does that mean I just let go and let God? No, that doesn't mean that. It means you work harder than anybody. Do you hear Paul? 
You work harder than anybody. But your confidence is not in your preparation. It's not in your personality. It's not in your strategy. It's not in your theological astuteness. It's not in your winsomeness. It's not in your apologetic knowledge. It's not in your doctrinal vocabulary. Your confidence is not in anything that you've done. Your confidence is the fact that the risen Christ, His very Spirit, now lives in you and empowers the most messed up and fumbled together words that you have to be able to be used to bring life to the people around you. We go, God, I can't do it. I'm going to give it to you. Now, I'm going to prepare. I'm going to work. and Whatever it is that it might be, but I'm going to give it to you. Lord, would you take what I brought? I can't do this on my own, but would you take it? I'm going to put it in your hands. Friends, whose hands is it in? Is it in yours or have you given it to him? It's not us. It's Christ in us. May this shape our lives. Would it shape the ministries that God's given us? That it would be shaped by the cross of Jesus, centered on the person of Jesus, and empowered by the Spirit of Jesus. That would be true for every single one of us. And that people may say a lot of things about this church. In this church, we will let you down. We will let other people down. I know that because we are breathing. We're human. We're not Jesus. We never want to claim to be. And there may be balls that we drop as a church, but one ball that I promise we will never drop, as long as I'm the pastor here, is that we will always proclaim Him. Amen. We will hold Jesus up as the hero of this church and the hope of the world. And we will preach Him. And we will proclaim Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You. We thank You for the grace that You've shown us to to come and reconcile us to you. Lord, to give us a real hope. And Lord, to entrust us with this ministry. God, it's, it's one thing for us to wrap our minds around the fact that you've saved us. It's another thing to wrap our minds around the fact that you want to use us. God, not only are we the prodigal who's returned home, but you've now told us to go back into the market and do the Father's work. God, would you help us see the call and the commission with the stewardship that you've given us, wherever it might be. God, help us to identify where that is and then help us to live a life that's shaped by your cross, centered on your son and empowered by your spirit. God, that we would give our lives to proclaiming Jesus, always warning, always teaching, with all wisdom, Lord, empowered by and filled with your spirit. And we need your help. We pray that you'd give it in Christ's name. Amen.